He's saying nobody, no New Yorkers are dispensable. The approach has been that he's going to do what it takes to fight for all of them. I think that's a message that really has resonated with New Yorkers. I think it's kind of a master class in crisis leadership. Hi, this is Eric Pagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden, with a herd still rooms free, perhaps a little too free, Mark Vanderbosch, on the phone line. And Mark, a lot of activity in Stockholm these days. I've been cruising around town a bit, seeing the action on the streets, and the streets of Stockholm are absolutely packed. Parks, restaurants, uh, cafes, uh, small businesses, everything seems to be pretty much running at normal. It's kind of a a blossoming of, of a spring here in Stockholm. It's actually getting a bit of pushback from some of the authorities who are saying that people need to take this much more seriously. Swedes are starting to get a bit complacent, and I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. I feel myself also perhaps not being as careful as I was a month and a half ago. There is certainly concern now. Just a few moments ago, the uh, interior minister of uh, Sweden, uh, Mikael Damberg, he went up on a, on a press conference and uh, said that the beautiful weather and there's actually a, a triple whammy on the horizon we have here. It's a it's a weekend where everyone's getting paid in Sweden. Everyone gets paid on the same day. And also coming up, it's the uh, Valpurgis uh, celebrations on the 30th of uh, April and then the 1st of May, the big uh, labor demonstrations traditionally. All uh, occasions for non-social distancing, but the uh, minister is saying we've got to be a little more careful and there's going to be crackdowns apparently on some of these uh, establishments that don't follow these guidelines. A real triple threat and the Swedes and people particularly in Stockholm are not being restrained in any way or at least not legally speaking and as far as the herd running free. I just saw a message in my Facebook group in the area where I live, an area in Stockholm where people are tend to be very, very active and we're pretty close to one of the natural parks. And lots of complaints about joggers. People are walking around and some of the older folks in the risk zones are saying that joggers are not showing courtesy in our coming too close to them as they pass by. So a bit of controversy in relation to that. And indeed, you're correct. In Stockholm, people are having a very difficult time keeping themselves at home. Social distancing is a bit of a joke at this point. It's the emperor's uh, new clothes. We've lost control here. It's interesting. It's also, we're uh, recording this episode on the 24th of uh, April, and it's kind of a big moment in the United States as well, a bit of an experimental moment as the state of Georgia is uh, basically reopening today. It's opening up a lot of uh, smaller businesses. You know, there's, there's quite a big movement at the moment to uh, certain states, protests where people are saying that we need to get back to work, got to get uh, this social distance thing, thing behind us. And uh, today in uh, Georgia, places like uh, bowling alleys and barbershops and nail salons, places that I would say are kind of like, or let's say the most conducive environments for spreading COVID, a lot of face-to-face uh, interaction, very close uh, non-social distancing type of uh, interactions. Those kind of places are the ones they're uh, they're going to be opening up first here. But I also got to say, I mean, just it's obviously a big controversial thing in the United States about such a, a maneuver by the governor of um, Georgia. But that's kind of been the case here all along. As a matter of fact, the uh, radio studio where we record the show, our neighbor is a tattoo parlor and uh, just walked by there uh, 10 minutes ago. They're open for business. I didn't see anybody getting a tattoo at the moment, but that seems like one of those things that maybe you could put off for a few weeks or a couple of months. But, you know, I'm not a tattoo guy. I'm not uh, I'm not going to comment on that. And also you have to feel some sympathy, of course, for the uh, proprietors of these kind of establishments that make a living from this. But yeah, just the spatial aspects of this where some places it's a big deal. Other places it's business as usual. 
I think that's one of the other stories of this uh, of this moment that we're covering here on this podcast. You know, obviously, COVID-19 is a very infectious disease, uh, but also infectious is social behavior. So when you see people around you behaving in a particular way, not being overly concerned, uh, leading their life as though everything were normal, then you're more prone yourself, of course, to behave in that fashion. I include myself. And I think that's part of the problem here. But it's also linked, I think, to some of the mixed messaging that we've been getting from the media and the government and the authorities around us across the world, but in Sweden specifically as well. And then again, we have an epidemiologist here who's become a bit of a local celebrity on the Tegnell. And he, once in a while, goes, you know, there's a daily press conference here at two o'clock. And, you know, once in a while, he'll say, well, the curve is flattening, things are looking good. And as soon as you say that, of course, people view that as a, an excuse to, you know, relax. However, two, three days later, the same, you know, experts go on the news and say, well, well, it turns out that uh, we had misread our statistics. And in reality, uh, although the situation looks promising, we cannot really say with certainty that the situation is improving. Uh, and th- this thing about statistics, I think, is, is a problem throughout the world. But they're being used uh, to, to motivate certain behaviors and, and to also motivate guidelines and things of that nature. But a lot of times, even the experts, people who make statistics their profession, have to sort of do a mea culpa and go back and admit to having misread or not having included a key data point in, in their analysis. And when they come back and say that they've made a, an incorrect statement two or three days earlier, uh, by then it's too late. The boat has sailed. And uh, people will just remember what the experts have actually communicated before. So this whole issue of communication and the use of statistics in this crisis, I think, is extremely important. Science communication is actually a field of uh, research that I think that uh, we're going to have to get uh, some experts to come in and to uh, talk about that, how to properly communicate in such a fluid uh, moment like we're living in now when the uh, the facts are changing, the models are, are using certain assumptions that may or may not be accurate. So I think we need to drill down more on the science communication, perhaps devote an entire episode of this podcast to uh, just such a thing. Of course, we have to we have to hold the the experts and the decision makers to account. But at the same time, a certain amount of sympathy that this this is a very difficult environment to uh, to give uh, very important information to the public in. And they're under a lot of pressure as well to give quick information. People want to know what's happening today, right now. And that has been the case in terms of screening, for example, potential drugs that can help with this. Obviously, a lot of a lot of discussions about the effectiveness of chloroquine right now. Perhaps we were a little too optimistic too early on this. And again, people like you, like me, politicians, others around the, the community uh, in the economic sphere and so on, are looking to these experts to give them guidance, but at the same time, I'm pressuring them all the time, especially trying to pressure them into providing a sort of an optimistic outlook because everybody wants this to be over. So there's a bias with respect to that as well. Most recently, for example, in Stockholm, they did an analysis of people who had donated blood in the hospitals. And there was a pretty large number of cases, I think over a thousand. And they noted that over 11% of the people donating blood were showing signs of antibodies and that they have been infected in the past with coronavirus, which of course is great from a herd immunity perspective. So they said that, and then people start to say, oh, great, we're going to achieve our immunity in Sweden pretty quickly. And then they had to back this out and say, oops, no, we made a mistake. We misread a parameter. And uh, of course, from an analysis perspective, also people donating blood are likely to be people who are healthier than the average. So there's a lot of factors playing into that. But the news was meant to be supportive, and then it turned out to be erroneous and uh, having sort of a negative impact on behavior. And this is taking place all over the world. 
Well, one place that uh, has really been uh, the area of focus is one of your hometowns, Mark, uh, New York City, where uh, you're speaking of uh, press conferences and uh, communication by leaders. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of the state of New York, has been uh, really uh, quite phenomenal in his ability to uh, communicate, show empathy, and to uh, really um, get the message out about uh, the situation in uh, the, the city and the state of New York. We're going to be talking about uh, Andrew Cuomo in particular and also the uh, situation in uh, New York in general with uh, Professor Eric Stern coming up in a few moments here in this podcast. He's our expert guest this time. He's a professor at the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity at the University at Albany in uh, upstate uh, New York. So uh, Eric Stern is going to come in and give us uh, his uh, analysis on the situation in New York and also share some of his insights on uh, crisis management in general. That's coming up on this episode, episode number 10 of the podcast, Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic, with me, Eric Paglia, and Mark Vandenbosch. In terms of uh, medical insights, uh, the next episode of this podcast, will be uh, talking to uh, one of the top doctors in uh, Iceland to give an explanation on how Iceland actually has handled this uh, quite uh, effectively, perhaps the most effective country in all of uh, Europe, all of the Western world, on par perhaps with uh, some of the responses in places like uh, Taiwan and South Korea. So that'll be on the next episode. All right, Mark, so let's transition into the uh, interview segment of this uh, podcast, where we talk to an expert, uh, in this case, Professor Eric Stern, filling us in on the situation in uh, New York, and also an evaluation of the performance of uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo here on Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic. New York State, uh, of course, is one of the hardest hit places in the United States, among the harder hit in the world at this point, because of a fairly vigorous response from the government of the state of New York. We've been under lockdown for about a month already. The program, it's called New York State on Pause. It was just extended until May 15th, and I think a lot of people are expecting that it could go on substantially longer. All schools are closed. All non-essential businesses are closed. Uh, Higher education is being delivered and other education as well. Remotely, there was just a a new order late last week that went into effect that you're you're supposed to wear a mask whenever you break your social distancing for essential business. The uh, amount of traffic that you see on on the road greatly reduced. And I'm speaking from upstate New York, from the state capital region, Albany. There's a very big difference in different places. And I guess that's one of my key messages that we have to keep in mind. When I work with international colleagues on this, they like to talk about the U.S. approach. And that's actually pretty hard to put your finger on what the U.S. approach might be. There's an approach in New York and there's an approach in like-minded states. But there are states where there has not been a lockdown at all, where the the measures are are much more selective and perhaps closer to Sweden in some respect. Although the national guidelines coming out of the White House and CDC, the uh, national public health authorities have tended to recommend lockdowns and that kind of thing. I mean, they're saying now, I saw the uh, the press conference earlier just a little while ago this evening. Uh, they're projecting that the peak has passed. Now we're kind of on the downslope, at least in, the, in New York City. Is that is that the sense you're getting as well, that things are getting better? And um, perhaps you can also comment on some of these pretty um, substantial uh, measures that were taken with the Javits Center and bringing the, the Navy ship up there. So first of all, uh, you know, I talked about the New York, New York on pause approach. There really were two components to that. One of it was measures to flatten the curve, which is primarily about social distancing. 
The other was about increasing the healthcare capacity because the bad case scenario and one that we haven't seen but have been uncomfortably close to was a situation where the uh, healthcare system was completely overwhelmed by COVID cases. A lot of work was done to increase the number of available hospital beds in general and particularly uh, ICU beds, ventilator capacity. That was one of the issues. For the most part, I think within New York State, uh, there has been a you know fairly positive attitude towards what the governor has been doing. They were using modeling and that or, or worst case type scenarios to try to figure out what the need was going to be and then trying to create lowering the demand by flattening the curve and then increasing capacity through a variety of means, including also some of the measures that you alluded to, Eric, in terms of getting the Navy medical ship, that's the comfort that you mentioned. Emergency hospitals were set up in a number of locations, including the Javits Center, to have overflow capacity. There have been some strategic discussions about whether those would, some of those would be frontline COVID or whether they would be diverting regular cases to those places uh, in order to take some of the pressure off other hospitals. Another thing that they've done is postponing elective procedures. In terms of the situation in New York, as I understand it, we are seeing a slight downturn in the curve. And so there's hope that we may have passed the peak. We still are at a high level and it isn't, isn't entirely clear whether it's going to be a rapid descent or whether we're, we're going to be stuck at a plateau for a while. I pulled a few figures from Governor Cuomo's brief yesterday. There was a slight drop in the daily death rate, which was encouraging. They're down to about 16,000 hospitalizations. Movement of people to the ICU and intubations for ventilators are down. Intubation number is kind of important because the death rate of folks who are put on those ventilators is frighteningly high. I believe it's 80% of the people. The numbers are still horrific and high. My understanding at this point with the information that we have is that without these very aggressive social distancing measures, it would have looked a lot worse. Given your extensive experience in analyzing uh, past crises and working uh, with uh, different uh, political leaders and administrative professionals in uh, the realm of crisis management, Eric, how would you assess the management of this crisis uh, so far, the failures and the successes? And some of these uh, leadership issues, Andrew Cuomo, of course, has become quite the face of this crisis, not just for New York, but I think internationally as well. And then the mayor of New York City, uh, Bill de Blasio, how would you assess the performances there so far? At the moment, I'm talking mostly about kind of state and local responses in the New York area. A lot of questions have been raised and continue to be raised about the federal response, which also has its bright spots and some issues that appear to be problematic. And the more that comes out about what was known when, the sharper the questioning of some of the moves that were made at the federal level becomes. As far as New York State is concerned, there are a number of important successes, flattening the curve, bringing down the reinfection rate. The measures that were taken in New York have lowered the reinfection rate significantly. And there has been, uh, as I alluded to before, uh, a rapid expansion and repurposing of the hospital capacity. Regional cooperation. Uh, there's an, an understanding that uh, when it comes to this kind of thing, the borders between jurisdictions are just lines in a map. People work in, in New York State, but live in Connecticut and New Jersey and vice versa. People are moving around to do shopping. And so uh, one area of success, I think, has been the governors working together on a, on a regional basis to try to coordinate particularly close cooperation in the so-called tri-state area. Pennsylvania, I believe, has been cooperating as well and, and others. I think there are about six governors now that are closely coordinating their policy and trying to make sure that they work together in, in ways that 
that don't leave gaps and don't trip each other up. I think that's very helpful and significant. The hospitals have been working at very high capacity and pretty close to the red line and have been managing, even with some cases, shortages of personal protective equipment. The state, I think, has been doing a pretty good job of trying to uh, look at the situation from a whole state perspective, making sure that critical resources get where they needed when they're needed. That I think the governor deserves some and the, the state authorities deserve a lot of credit for doing that. I think one of the key challenges here, and they're very much aware of it and working very hard to solve the problem, but it's been difficult to roll out testing in a comprehensive way. And part of the problem here is that without good testing, you're partly flying blind. So testing is critical for situational awareness and to be able to implement a smart strategy likely to be equally or even more important as try to find a safe way to open up the state and the country. Not quite there yet. There's a, a discussion going on here about whose fault that is. Is it the fault of the federal government? Should the federal government have done more to make testing easily available? The federal government sometimes tries to throw the ball back to the states and say they should have fixed it themselves. And a bit of mud has been slung on that particular issue of late. I do want to say that a key factor is that state government has taken a very proactive approach, not waiting until the numbers are, are really terrible, but watching the trend lines and devising strategies, taking measures early on to try to make it possible to be in a position to get through the peaks that they knew would be coming. I think both the leaders and the system deserve a fair amount of credit for that. I mean, from your experience, Eric, uh, studying crises, uh, large and small, what does this look like from the inside? I mean, you've traced processes. You've looked at these type of situations in, in very great detail in the past. What does it look like inside of the governor's office? What does it look like inside of the mayor's office? How do they interact? How do they plan, assess situations? What kind of experts do they talk to? I mean, do you have any ideas on on that dynamic of this crisis or in general? I think you're raising a really critical issue. One of the things that we know is that uh, a key determinant of success and failure in these situations is the kind of mode of interaction between uh, leaders and experts. Uh, first of all, leaders need experts who understand the, the technical issues associated with uh, a particular crisis. And if those folks are not a part of the process, if you fail to identify them or you don't have the right people around the table, it's difficult to succeed. British system, for instance, there's a, a recognition of this, and there's a, a body that advises the Cabinet Office Crisis Management System called SAGE, Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. The logic behind having that function is that the chief scientist can be a kind of a knowledge broker who can make sure that government can reach out and find the right experts, and then the chief scientist becomes an advocate for science in the process. If you have a, a leader who is willing to really, really listen and has the capacity to understand what's the, the device that is coming from scientists and other types of experts, makes a huge difference. I think it's very clear if you watch one of the governor's briefings that he has a very good command of the parameters that are important in this situation, of what the key commodities are. He's drawing upon it advanced modeling and simulation to try to make dynamic calculations, not only to follow the data and the trends of where we are, but to look ahead and identify scenarios that you need to prepare for. That enables you to be proactive. The former chief administrator of FEMA, Craig Fugate, used to say that the one thing you can never get back in a crisis is time. 
by definition, if we think about what makes a crisis a crisis, that time pressure is fundamental. So there are windows of opportunities to position yourself or to mitigate risks or to preposition supplies and people, put yourself in a good position when the crunch comes. And if you miss those opportunities, you're in a much worse position. I think one of the things that we can see here very clearly is that there's a close dialogue between Governor Cuomo and the various relevant experts. He is trusting them on the issues that he, as a generalist, does not have a deep professional understanding of, but he developed a, a good working understanding of these things and surrounded himself with good people. That is absolutely critical. There are many cases of crises and other strategic decisions that are made where the expertise for one reason or another has been excluded, or you have arrogant leaders that think that they know everything and are not paying attention to the experts. When you're dealing with an issue where there's a lot of uncertainty, a, a novel issue, right? so a novel coronavirus, this is an issue which is really interesting from the perspective that there are some aspects about it that are very familiar. Uh, there has been an expectation that that the world is going to see uh, pandemics, and a lot of work has been done by the World Health Organization, by the various health authorities around the world, including in Sweden and the United States, to prepare for a pandemic. It was big concern with avian flu early on in the, in the new millennium after some outbreaks in different places. And the uh, H1N1 set off a lot of alarms. There was very worrying early data about how deadly that one was. That one turned out to not be as bad as feared, but uh, also galvanized a lot of preparedness efforts. So on the one hand, there was a, an understanding of how to prepare for a pandemic and what the disruptions of society might look like and what you could do about it, and even what types of equipment you're likely to need. But then on the other hand, when you're dealing with a novel virus, there are things that you don't know about how it spreads, about the extent to which people acquire immunity and whether herd immunity is viable or not. There may not be a vaccine. That We may not know much about what treatments work. So there's, there's need to make up other things <laughs> along the way. And the lack of that information is very stress-inducing. Uncertainty is another condition that we associate with crises. So I think we see in the run-up to this pandemic combination of significant uncertainty about the threat and time pressure and uh, windows of opportunity to, to prepare and to mitigate the threat, some of which perhaps were not fully capitalized upon. Perhaps, Eric, we can use um, one of the iconic crises of, uh, of our generation to uh, illustrate some of the things that uh, you've been talking about. That's, of course, 9-11. You're uh, one of the co-authors of a book uh, on crisis management that on the cover you have a picture of, um, of the mayor of New York, the governor of New York, and the president of the United States. Perhaps you could use 9-11 to kind of illustrate some of the um, interactions between these different levels of authority in America, which to an international audience is perhaps a little bit confusing, perhaps in some sense from this pandemic perspective has been not as smooth as we would have hoped. That's a great question. One of the things that we know about crisis management is that, on the one hand, it's the relationships between the people, the leaders and the experts that can make the difference if you have a good process. But the structures of government, the way that the government is built up, the division of labor across levels of government from, from local to regional, provincial, state, federal relationships with international governance makes a very big difference. Some countries have very centralized and, to a fair extent, top-down systems. France is often mentioned. The United States and Germany have systems that are, for many types of crisis issues, significantly bottom-up. First of all, local local governments and counties uh, have important roles, but also uh, state government governors have key roles. It's not always clear who is supposed to do what in these situations. For the most part, I think post 9-11, 
We were dealing with a major terrorist attack that was quickly determined to be the work of an external adversary. It's one of those us versus them situations that I think helps to bring people together. And to a large extent, a lot of politics was suspended. There have been some tendencies towards that during COVID as well, but not at all to the same extent. And that partly, I think, also has to do with the character of leadership coming out of the White House in particular that has gone back and forth between, on the one hand, saying we shouldn't politicize this, and then very clearly in its, its communications and its actions, acting in ways that either explicitly or implicitly uh, suggest a high degree of politicization. So a big part of that potential to kind of come together that's associated with the event, I think, has been lost. Within New York State, I think the governor, Governor Cuomo, has done a fantastic job of bringing the community together and putting politics, to a large extent, aside for the duration. All of these levels have important roles in a crisis like 9-11. Rudy Giuliani, who's since become a more controversial figure, he was seen as America's mayor at the time, providing strong leadership, not only to manage the crisis, but to rebuild it. It's been some criticism of the mayor, Ray de Blasio, for being a bit slower to recognize the seriousness of this thing and perhaps not being as aggressive early on in the enforcement of the directives that were coming down from the governor. I remember there was a squabble about governor visited the city and did a drive around and saw that there were a lot of people congregating in parks and it kind of looked like things usually look. And the governor pointed it out as something that needed to be addressed and he gave the city a kind of an ultimatum to fix it. I don't think Mayor de Blasio has gotten the kind of positive reaction action to his his leadership that Governor Cuomo has gotten. Governor Cuomo has become America's governor in this situation, and there are people who are saying that he would have made a great presidential candidate. A lot of people feel that, that he really is providing the leadership that is needed at this particular moment. can be quite inspiring to watch. His press conferences are uh, extremely impressive and, and somehow engrossing. Uh, he, has, he has this great uh, combination of presenting facts and data, but also this real sort of feeling of empathy. And it's just his whole, uh, his whole use of language is, is actually really, really quite compelling. That's absolutely right. He's a fantastic communicator. I think people, uh, New Yorkers across the state, and he, he was a you know, figure that's been around for quite a while. He's made some enemies and he's taken a lot of heat over the years, but I, I think there's a growing consensus across the aisle that he's the right person to be in charge at this moment. I think you put your finger on some of the key aspects already. He has the capacity to communicate complicated things in a way that people can understand, and he's using evidence and data and graphs, but it, it's not cold and clinical. He brings it alive with stories. I think he projects a combination of competence and compassion that, that is quite compelling. And he, he talks about his family and his brother, Chris, actually got the virus. His approach has been very value-driven and articulated very clearly in terms of the, the goal being to save as many lives as possible. He's saying nobody, no New Yorkers are dispensable. People who, who are in the risk groups, senior citizens, people with, with pre-existing conditions, they're all people's mothers uh, and fathers and brothers and sisters and cousins. The approach has been that he's going to do what it takes to fight for all of them, knowing that we're not going to be able to save them all. I think that's a message that really has resonated with New Yorkers, so kind of a value-based leadership with a lot of warmth. I think he's become a voice 
of comfort for a lot of people, much like Churchill was for the British people during World War II or, uh, or Roosevelt you know, during the Great Depression. I think it's kind of a master class in crisis leadership. And the audience uh, of these press briefings and his other press appearances goes well beyond the state of New York. It's been picked up uh, across the country and it's created a standard that I think has made the White House uncomfortable because the way the White House briefings are done, which has become something of a, of a surrogate or a replacement for President Trump's rallies, they have a tendency to get quite political. The president's communication tends to be a lot more vague with regard to the subtleties of the material, the terminology that's being used, a lot of inaccuracies. Whereas Cuomo uses his bully pulpit to amplify the public health strategies and advice and guidelines, Trump often projects ambivalence. And at the same time, the CDC is saying that they recommend that people wear masks. Trump says, yeah, but I'm not going to wear one. It's voluntary. Right? And so you get, a, you get a mixed message that takes some of the edge off uh, strategic communication that's taking place. That's not happening in terms of the communication coming out of state government to Governor Cuomo's credit. Okay, Professor Eric Stern, thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast on Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic. Oh, it's a pleasure to chat with you, Eric.